everyone and welcome to Energy Explored. This podcast covers the challenges of achieving a carbon neutral global economy, cutting emissions of gases and pollutants and setting up new energy systems. Join Reed Smith lawyers and guest speakers as they shed light on the most important trends in emissions control and new fuels. Tune in as we follow the ever-evolving journey through the transition of energy. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Energy Explored podcast. This is Chris Edwards, a senior associate in the ENR team in Dubai. I'm joined today by another senior associate, Liam Hart, from our London office. We're here today to talk about nuclear energy, the contracts, complexities, and the outlook of the nuclear industry. Liam, thanks for joining me. I understand in the UK, the NEC form of contract is typically used for nuclear projects, uh, which is quite unfamiliar to myself, having been stationed out in the Middle East for 10 years. Perhaps you could tell us a little bit about the NEC contract. Sure. So the NEC contract isn't all that familiar to contractors that don't work uh, in the UK or in South Africa or Hong Kong. That's because... The NEC form is generally used in those three jurisdictions. It's important to understand a little bit about the genesis of that contract to understand why it's used there and not elsewhere. So the NEC form was developed in Britain and was used primarily and still is used primarily in Britain to deal with contracts with a government-related aspect. So by way of example, it was used very heavily during the London Olympics It's used very heavily on hospital projects or road building projects and so on in the UK. That means it's also used a lot on nuclear projects in the UK because they often have a kind of a government element with them. Now, the body that came up with the NEC form of contract, they embarked on a marketing campaign in relation to it. And that marketing campaign gained traction in South Africa. So it's used fairly widely there as well. And in Hong Kong. Okay, so they're the the three main jurisdictions it's used in. You do see it sometimes used in Australia and Ireland and New Zealand, but much more infrequently. So it's, it's, it's mostly used in UK, South Africa and Hong Kong. And Lim, how does it differ to other forms of contracts? For example, FIDIC, I know I'm briefly familiar with sort of some of the structure to it, but I, I know there's main option clauses, there's X clauses, Y clauses, Z clauses. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so I mean, just from a practical perspective, you know, um, international contractors they used they used to FIDIC, for example, and FIDIC um, is quite a straightforward contract to use in a, just a practical sense. In in that the clauses of FIDIC are, are set out, you know, from one to nineteen, one to twenty at the start of the contract, and there aren't kind of lots of different types of bolt-on elements to it. NEC is is different. Okay, so NEC has a number of core clauses that form the kind of heart or the nucleus of every NEC contract. And those core clauses set out the fundamental obligations in respect to things like uh, the contractor's main responsibilities, time for completion, payment, and so on. Okay. Now, most NEC4, because that's the latest iteration of the NEC contracts, most NEC4 contracts have nine core clauses. Then in addition to those core clauses, you bolt on so-called main option clauses, and they're selected by the users to reflect the chosen procurement route to be used on the project. A good example would be main option A, which is a price contract with an activity schedule where the risk of carrying out the work at the agreed prices is, is borne largely by the contractor. And that differs from 
say, main contract option E, which is a cost reimbursable contract where, you know, as the name suggests, the contractor is reimbursed the actual costs they incur in carrying out the works plus fee. And, and obviously in that contract, the risk is largely taken by, by the client, by the employer. Now, in addition to those, you have so-called secondary option clauses, which are commonly known as X clauses. And they deal with certain commonly faced issues on construction projects like the provision of bonds, price inflation, limitations of liability, and so on. Then in addition to those, you get Y clauses that deal with payment issues. And they're particularly important in the UK because of uh, statutory payment obligations that apply in respect of, of, of certain construction contracts. And then on top of all of those, you get so-called Z clauses, which are bespoke terms or amendments to the contract. Now, it's the Z clauses that often create problems or tensions when you use NEC, because what often happens is you have these core clauses, main option clauses, secondary option clauses, Y clauses, and so on, which are all in standard form. And then someone decides to bolt on a Z clause that cuts across entirely the risk profile or the wording of, of those standard form obligations. And so you, you have to be very careful when you use an NEC because it can be quite confusing, especially the first time you pick one up because it's quite difficult to navigate the document. And then you find when you navigate it that these Z clauses can sometimes come in and really change things around. So there's a real risk that the contract can become a, a bit of a kind of Frankenstein's monster of different components unless you, you, you pay particular care to how the options kind of work with each other and how the Z clauses kind of fit into that. Right. And so if you're looking at uh, a nuclear power project outside of the UK, would you suggest that someone uses the NEC contract or would you recommend an alternative? Well, that's a good question, actually. I mean, in certain jurisdictions, your hands can be bound in terms of using NEC. So, you know, as you, as is inherent in your question, I mean, in the UK, you don't really have many options. You have to use an NEC generally because of the nature of the um, procurement route that's used and the kind of government influence on that. Outside of the UK, I mean, I've got experience of working with NEC in a nuclear context in South Africa. And there again, you know, you may as contractor not have very many options. It may be that you that you just have to use NEC. If you're not in one of those jurisdictions where you have to use NEC because that's required by the entity that you're dealing with, it may be more sensible to use a different form of contract to form the underlying basis of the bespoke agreement that you come up with. So, for example, an NEC doesn't really have very many obligations with respect to testing and commissioning, which obviously is a, an absolutely fundamental part of a nuclear project, a new build nuclear project. And so in that respect, you might be better off looking at something like a FIDIC silver book or, or, or even an ICME red book for certain provisions. But I think internationally and international contractors working, especially on an EPC basis, you know, they will default to uh, the FIDIC silver book. Yeah, absolutely. That's that, that's sort of what I was thinking as well, particularly in the Middle East where FIDIC is is the go-to. And of course, the NEC uh, also has its sort of own peculiarities in terms of the, the language and quite short IP provisions, as I understand. Yeah, I mean, you, you're right. I mean, there's, there's two important points there. I mean, the first is the language. Okay, now, the language of NEC was 
drafted on the face of things to try and make things simpler. So it's drafted in, and I'm making air marks here, so so-called plain English. So it's it uses short sentences and it breaks clauses down using bullet points. It's all drafted in the present tense and it attempts to avoid cross-references and so on. I mean, you know, and that's that's laudable if that actually kind of results in a contract which is clear and, you know, easy to use. But the problem is that from a lawyer's perspective and actually, you know, very much from a, from a user's perspective, um, there's an accusation that the NEC uses quite loose language and that the present tense which is used can be confusing and it's often unclear to what extent actual obligations and liabilities um, are in place. Um, so the road to hell is paved with good intentions, I suppose. And so the language that, it, that is used in NEC, although on the face of things, it's quite simple, is actually not, not that easy to use. The second point that, that you raise in, in relation to IP is a really important one, a really good one. It, and that's because, you know, IP rights, again, really fundamental to, you know, many nuclear projects. And so NEC a big problem when you use NEC in, in the nuclear context is that the IP obligations are somewhat lightweight and ambiguous. And so you have to heavily amend an NEC if you're going to use it uh, in a in a um, nuclear context to bolster or replace the existing IP provisions to deal with that. I mean, I think a, a key thing really to bear in mind with in relation to NEC is that it has attracted, you know, a fair degree of judicial criticism, actually, in the English courts, where it's quite commonly used because of this ambiguous drafting, because it, because it doesn't really um, address things as, as, as clearly as you would hope. And that's particularly problematic with NEC because although it's been, you know, around for a while now, it hasn't been around for getting on for 100 years like certain other contracts like the the JCT form which is currently used in, widely in the UK and that kind of relative newness of, of NEC means that many of the kind of ambiguous provisions haven't really been fully worked through in the courts in the way that they have been worked through in relation to other standard form contracts and that means that you can often find yourself in a situation which is a difficult one as a contract user with NEC where it's not entirely clear what the what the clauses mean and how they're supposed to operate. And if you're a user of the NEC, I mean, obviously that's not where you want to be, but it's not where we want to be as lawyers either because what we don't want to have to do is to say, well, probably a contractual clause means X, but there's a chance that it might mean Y and a certain you know uh, tribunal might treat it as Z because what we want to do is is, is give you know clear concise advice about what the actual contract definitively means to the extent that it's possible to do so and so the NEC makes that makes that difficult absolutely and is is the lack of clarifying case law partly because of the, the way disputes are handled under the NEC is, is it usually arbitration or, or dabs or how are disputes resolved so there's there's a tiered dispute resolution procedure um, which goes through um, adjudication, which is a precursor to either courts or arbitration, depending on what you specify in the in the contract. I think a a an issue with the NEC is that it suffers in comparison, um, for example, to something like FIDIC. 
because FIDIC is so widely used, um, so it's used across so many jurisdictions, you'll find that there may be some useful clarificatory case law in relation to certain points or discussion of certain points in FIDIC in places like Singapore or the Australian jurisdictions or wherever it might be. Whereas in the UK and South Africa and Hong Kong, where NEC is used, you're kind of relying you know, on the courts in those countries. And so therefore, you're also relying on the fact that the parties to the NEC will have specified that the courts rather than arbitration is the appropriate forum for the final determination of the issues, which isn't always the case, you know, now, you know, especially on a nuclear project, it's fairly rare, really, on a big, you know, construction project, big nuclear project for the courts to be specified as the forum to ultimately determine disputes. It's normally arbitration. Arbitration is, of course, generally confidential, which means that you don't get the kind of generation creation of um, useful binding precedent in relation to to these kind of ambiguous provisions that you otherwise might might find. And of course, there's quite a lot of complexities when it comes to nuclear disputes. I find it particularly interesting in terms of the, the various licensing regimes and how, how people are supposed to comply with all of that. And then of course, the, the role of technical nuclear experts when issues come up in terms of the uh, technical complexities on the projects yeah i mean that's that's a really good point i mean whatever form of contract you use on a nuclear project it's always going to have to be heavily amended or or very careful thought is going to have to be given to the fact that um the nuclear regulatory regime differs from place to place and you often see, or you know, I have seen, situations where contractors get their fingers burnt a little bit because they might be used to dealing with a regulator in one country and then assume that the regulatory regime, and probably more importantly, the way in which it's applied, will be the same in a different country. Okay. Yeah. So um, certain countries have a very black letter approach to the regulatory regime. Some slightly less so. I mean, I'd, I'd emphasize and re-emphasize it's only ever going to be slightly less because the nature of nuclear regulation means that it's it's so important that the that procedures are followed. But but you will see, you know, a slight nuance in the way you know uh, regulations are applied. You'll see you'll see differences in how long it takes a regulator to approve documentation. And that might simply be a facet of the resources that they've got or the experience that they've got in a given country in relation to um, nuclear power generation. So you may have a country that has a a very large uh, fleet of nuclear power stations. And because of that, you know, the regulator is is well versed in a number of kind of issues and quickly move to either approve documentation or ask for further information and to do that in a kind of intelligent and, and speedy way. That might not always be the same in, in other countries. And so, you know, dealing with that particular issue, dealing with the kind of regulatory regime and how long it takes to, uh, you know, get permissions and or how the periods of time in which a regulator is going to get back to you to, to ask for further information, further documentation, that's really crucial. And so th- that's going to end up in the, in the Z clauses. So what you have to be very careful about there is coming back to what I discussed at the... Um, at the start of this, that given that the Z clauses are, you know, are the bespoke amendments to the contract and have this ability to kind of cut across the standard form components that are bolted together in the NEC, you need to be very careful 
to make sure that those important Z clauses, which are going to be, you know, even more crucial on a nuclear project than another project, you know, actually fit in and make sense in the kind of broader context of the contract as a whole. Yeah, and I imagine that must be quite hard in countries where uh, this regulation has been developed from scratch and they're, they're just starting to roll out nuclear projects for the first time. Yeah, I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head because you've got a lot, a lot of countries where they're taking their first steps into the uh, nuclear new build world. And so they're preparing these kinds of regulatory regimes and building up their capacity to re- review documentation from, from scratch. I mean, what I would say on that front, though, is you should not necessarily underestimate how you know, steep the learning curve can be in countries which are yeah. already kind of nuclear generating countries, but where, you know, over the decades, they haven't necessarily built very much nuclear new builds. Yeah. So we're seeing at the moment, you know, a, a renaissance of, of nuclear new build because of, you know, various factors. So, you know, firstly, you know, the, the desire to kind of move away from fossil fuels, but 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 secondly, also the kind of volatility we've seen in the energy markets as a pro- product of the war in Ukraine and, you know, the desire to have greater energy security. And so you're, you're seeing now, you know, countries that may have built nuclear, nuclear plants, you know, decades ago, but now they're going back into that arena. And that means that even in those, you know, fairly sophisticated kind of legal environments, they might not necessarily have the lifetime of experience that you might get in other jurisdictions dealing with regulatory, regulatory issues, and, and that creates its own, uh, its own problems. And you, you mentioned a renaissance in, in certain countries. In, in, in the Middle East, we're just sort of starting to see it, it blossom. We have, a, obviously, the Bracken nuclear power mm-hmm. plant in the United Arab Emirates, which we've been fortunate enough to do some work around. I understand Saudi Arabia, Turkey, Jordan, and even Egypt are also busy developing their nuclear uh, sectors to supply their energy needs. What's the position in the UK? Are they experience a renaissance as well, or what's what's the position there? Yeah, so I mean, there's currently a, um, a nuclear new build plant under construction uh, at Hinkley Point C, and there is, you know, a strong indication by the government that there will be another nuclear new build plant at Sizewell B, and so I think the. The, the signs are good for the nuclear industry in the UK. I mean, the UK government is committed to building more nuclear plants. I mean, and for the two reasons that I've just outlined. I mean, firstly, because we, we're looking to get to a kind of carbon neutral situation. But secondly, also because the dynamic has changed now that the energy security issues have come to the fore following um, recent events in Ukraine. What I would say there, though, is... The, the devil is in the detail, and the, and and the detail really is, you know, the, the funding model that will be used to to build, you know, nuclear nuclear plants in the future. Nuclear nuclear plants are inherently extremely expensive. There's always a degree of construction risk in relation to them, given the complexity and size of the projects. As we all know. There's been an enormous amount of inflation of late, again, caused um, to a large extent by events in Ukraine. And so that has caused construction prices to, to, to spike with the knock-on effects on, on, on various projects, including Hinkley. And so what that means is that particular care, particular kind of attention is now being paid to, you know, who actually 
funds the construction of these projects, you know, what method is going to be used. And it kind of remains to be seen, really, to what extent enough money can be generated to invest in these in these projects. But the will is certainly there on the part of the UK government. I mean, we're not in the territory now that we were in, you know, in the immediate aftermath of, say, the Fukushima disaster, the Fukushima incident, where nuclear was seen as really the, you know, persona non grata, uh, you know, across Europe. And many countries decided to step back from nuclear generation. Given the events in Ukraine, we're seeing, for example, in Germany, that plants that were intended to be mothballed there as part of a policy to move away from nuclear electricity power generation and and are having their lifetimes extended. It remains to be seen how long they will be extended for, but, you know, certainly the the nature of the conversation has changed. A big part of that is the climate crisis that we're facing. In in the UK, certainly, voices that were, you know, very firmly anti-nuclear, let's say a decade ago, are now very firmly pro-nuclear in the sense that, you know, people recognise that if we are going to uh, address climate change, then one of the key ways that we're going to do that is by having a greater energy mix and nuclear is a big part of that. Absolutely. And, and you mentioned uh, Fukushima uh, and, of course, the current issues that we're experiencing in Ukraine. Uh, I suppose security issues as well as uh, construction costs must play heavily on the minds of governments when they're deciding uh, whether or not to pursue nuclear policies or not. I suppose ultimate responsibility for security of these nuclear facilities, that sits with national governments. Is that correct? I mean, ultimately, yes. I mean, these these installations are always key parts of the security infrastructure of any country. And, and you know, an interesting thing that we're seeing now post the Russian invasion of Ukraine is the fact that Rosatom, who are one of the major exporters of nuclear power generation in the world, so the Russian... um, State Nuclear Construction Agency, some of their projects uh, that they had planned in have either stalled or have been cancelled. So a good example of that would be the project that they had in uh, in Finland to build a nuclear reactor there has been cancelled. And I think you would have to look at that kind of decision through the microscope of, of national security, through the lens of national security, in the sense that, you know, for obvious reasons, countries are now more reluctant to let the nuclear agencies of certain states have a big stake in their domestic power generation. Absolutely. So you you have this sort of push and pull of where the uh, nuclear fuel supply is coming from and all the security issues around that, but also obviously the uh, environment and geopolitical issues pushing nuclear forward as well. Yeah, I mean, it's a really fascinating kind of... um, area to be working in at the moment because you know as a construction lawyer you've got these incredible pieces of technology that are you know they're really amazing i mean the, these plants are some of the most complex things that, that humankind has ever built or are the most complex things that humankind's ever built they're enormously expensive they take a long time to build safety is absolutely critical to them and you're really at the cutting edge of technology and so so dealing with that as 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 a lawyer 
you know you have to really bring to bear all the lessons that you've learned on previous nuclear projects on on non-nuclear projects so it's you know it's an exciting challenging thing to be working on but then you overlay on top of that the geopolitical and straight up political considerations at play with these projects and it's it's just a really fascinating important thing to be working on Absolutely. Well, I think that's a good time to wrap it up, Liam. Thank you so much for joining me. As always, please feel free to reach out to Reed Smith should you have any questions. Thank you for listening, and we hope you will join us again soon on the Energy Explored podcast. Energy Explored is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McCardle. For more information about Reed Smith's energy and natural resources practice, please email energyexplored at reedsmith.com. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and ReadSmith.com. And our social media accounts at ReadSmith LLP on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to Reed Smith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved.